For over 70 years, Oshner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. Clinical trials represent the fundamental agents of progress in cancer care. Tens of thousands of cancer patients enroll in clinical trials each year across the United States. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner medical oncologist Dr. Mark Matrana and oncology nurse practitioner Aaron Pierce to learn more about the role and types of clinical trials in oncology and discuss the unique clinical trial opportunities at Oshner. We will also clear up some common misconceptions about trials and touch upon what we envision for the future of clinical research. So welcome, Dr. Mark Matrena and Aaron Pierce to the show. I appreciate you both coming on and chatting with me about uh, this uh, important topic. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So, so let's start a little bit with just some background on you guys so I can, you know, we can give the, the listeners uh, uh, some uh, information about what brought you here, how you ended up in New Orleans and uh, your interest in clinical trials, what your role is now. So, Erin, do you want to start? Sure. My name's Erin Pierce. I'm a nurse practitioner at Oshner at Main Campus. Um, I grew up in Houma, Louisiana. I came here for nursing school and haven't left since. I'm now transplanted in New Orleans. Um, as far as my um, being involved in clinical trials, I am a nurse practitioner with our early phase clinical trial program at Oshner and am also the nurse manager um, helping to oversee the program. I'm Mark Matrana. Uh, my family's been uh, in Louisiana for many generations. I grew up on the West Bank and went to Tulane for undergrad and for grad school, went to LSU for medical school, did training at Ochsner in internal medicine, and ultimately ended up in Houston where I did my oncology training. After uh, leaving Houston, came to Ochsner to join the staff eight years ago and uh, now serve as the director of the Ochsner Precision Cancer Therapies Program. All right. Well, thank you for that. And I feel like the outsider here being a, a non-native New Orleanian or Louisianan. And thanks for, for making me feel at home here, both at Oshner and in the state. New so. Orleans will get you like that. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm still not a Saints fan. Um, so We will hold that against you, John. <laughs> so uh, let's start with a very general question and um, one that you can, you can answer probably in a number of ways, Aaron. But, but w- what is a, a clinical trial? The easiest thing I can say is that a a clinical trial is a research study. Essentially, every single drug that has ever been approved by the FDA and and put on the market has gone through clinical trials. And what they're looking for is to see the evidence behind the medication to see if it's worthwhile. Does it do something? um, Is it safe to give? And so in a nutshell, that's what I would say. And why do we place such a a focus and point of emphasis on clinical trials in our cancer care? That's a really good question. I would say that 
Like I mentioned before, since every single drug has to go through clinical trials, they're very familiar. When you look at our national guidelines, which dictates how all oncologists across the country should uh, provide um, oncology care, you can look at it and it's going to say participation um, by a clinical trial is recommended in the NCCN guidelines. So we really strive to get people involved in this and to be representative of the populations that we're serving. It's also important to note that patients tend to do better on clinical trials. They may have access to the latest, greatest drugs that they wouldn't have access to otherwise. And they are monitored more closely on clinical trials. Um, They are actually um, studies that show patients have better outcomes when they enroll on clinical trials. And so it also, you know, is about um, about the patient at the end of the day. Right. And, you know, not to leave our surgical and radiation colleagues out of there, but not all clinical trials are necessarily medication-based, right? Mm -hmm. They could be about the order of therapies. They could be surgical techniques. They could be whether we need any therapy or no therapy at all. Um, Observational studies, uh, you know, there are lots of different types of uh, clinical trials. Obviously, what we see uh, day-to-day are patients who are on medical therapies, and whether that's chemotherapy, targeted therapies, you know, immunotherapy, we can get into all that. But um, certainly, the the umbrella of clinical trials captures quite a bit. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Let me ask you, Mark, um, when we're assessing patients how do we decide who an optimal patient is for a clinical trial? Absolutely. Well, first, we want patients who are, are motivated to be on clinical trials. And, and usually, if patients understand what clinical trials are all about, um, most of them are, are very eager to participate. Um, what I would say is that every clinical trial has a set of inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. The inclusion criteria are all of the things the patient must have, must meet, the criteria they must meet in order to enroll in the trial. The exclusion criteria are all of the things they can't have. And uh, this is a little different for each trial, but it sort of defines the optimal population to be studied on that trial. In addition to meeting those criteria, uh, clinical trials really want patients who are healthy enough to participate in the clinical trial. And what we mean by that. In, in the oncology world, we call it a performance status. We want patients to be able to have a decent enough performance status to be, be healthy enough to get to the clinic, to actually participate in the therapy. And that's an important part of the, um, of the puzzle as well. Yeah, I think that's an important point that you brought up is that, you know, these inclusion-exclusion criteria are not aimed at trying to exclude patients. Uh, you know, I think there's a little bit of a cynical view sometimes is that, you know, oh, they're exactly. weeding out the patients who, who you know, might not do as well. But it's really about the safety of the patients. Number yes. one, absolutely, y- yes. you have to uh, make sure that they're going to tolerate this treatment. It's not going to do more harm than good. And a patient comes in and, you know, they can't walk very well for reasons of their medical condition or they, their uh, function of certain organs aren't going very well. This might not be a safe medication for them. To put them on a clinical trial might not be the right ethical thing to do, right? Yeah, correct. At every stage um, in the clinical trial process, patient safety is of utmost importance. And uh, I don't think the public always understands just how uh, much um, uh, we go through to ensure patient safety from the fact that we have an institutional review board, for example, uh, made up of independent uh, doctors who have nothing to do with this research, nurses, physical therapists, other healthcare professionals, as well as members of the community. Uh, patients themselves, clergy, and and other representatives who all must approve this research and say that it's ethical, that it's safe for patients, 
before we can ever even uh, fathom putting a patient on the trial. Exactly. Yeah, I've actually found that fascinating. Having in my training not gone through um, as many IRB institutional review board processes myself, but getting here and realizing that oh, there are these you know patient advocates who are reading through the informed consent saying you know, this has to be in better language because I don't think the patient's going to understand this and that. And that's a vital part of patient safety and patient interests and making sure we're doing right by the patients. So. Absolutely. That's not even, we're just talking about here at the local level, talking about IRBs, but that's not to say what we're doing at the national level with, you know, some of these national boards and safety monitoring committees that they have. So, I mean, at every step of the way, yes. patient safety is paramount. Absolutely. Mark, let me ask you another question. You know, we get this question a lot and I think there's some understandable confusion. So let's let's clear up. Talk me through what's the difference between different phases of study. We have a phase one, a phase two, phase three studies. What, is, what does all that mean? Yep, absolutely. So every drug on the market, as Aaron mentioned, has gone through the process of clinical trials in order to get FDA approved. And in order to do that, we have to go through a, a phase of research. And so the first phase, uh, well, long before we begin human trials, I should say, the drugs are studied in the lab. There are hundreds of thousands of drugs studied in labs all across the country every year, but only a very small proportion of those uh, make it to uh, be studied in animals. They look promising enough that animal studies are, are, are done. Those uh, studies are conducted and only a few of those that are studied in animals actually make it to human trials. They must uh, uh, meet certain criteria. And the first human trials, which we do, um, are called phase one clinical trials. This is the uh, trial in which uh, uh, the drug dose is defined. We try different doses, for example, using very um, well-defined uh, criteria of, of, of how to adjust the dose for each patient. And this is also uh, the point of this uh, process where we really delve into safety. Uh, what side effects are we seeing from the drug, so on and so forth. And these are done at only a few centers around the country. Auctioner is one of them. And these studies are also done in only a handful of patients, very small studies. Uh, the drugs that appear to be safe, um, they appear to be somewhat effective. Um, uh, they then go on to phase two studies. And these are a little bit larger studies. These are asking, uh, does the drug work? We sort of know the safety and we're going to, uh, you know, continue to look at the safety um, of, of the drug in phase two studies. But we're really asking the question, does the drug work? And then phase three study is a much larger study. Depending on the cancer type, it could be um, several dozen patients or it could be several thousand patients uh, in more common cancers like breast or prostate, for example. And these are usually randomized uh, trials. They're often trials that have two or multiple arms. And the question of the phase three trial is really, is the new therapy better than the best thing we have? Is it better than our standard of care, our current standard of care? And and in that way, it uh, if the trial is positive, if, uh, if we see that it is better than the standard of care, that becomes our new standard of care. Great. I think that was well explained. And I'm going to put us on the spot here for a second. You mentioned a couple word randomized. And I think mm -hmm. it's it's important to define some of these words. We hear it, you know, it's part of our our jargon a little bit because yeah. we just talk about these mm -hmm. things every day, randomized, blinded, you know, whatever, uh, placebo. Let's define a couple of those terms if you don't mind. Sure. So so what does it mean if, if we're randomized? So what, we can have a one-to-one, two-to-one. What is, what, how would you describe that, Aaron? 
that would be your chance of what you're going to be getting. So for instance, if you have a one-to-one ratio, um, that means you have a 50% chance of getting that medication. For every one person that gets the, the study arm, one person gets the, the actual medication. Yeah, and we have uh, usually computer-based uh, generators that uh, do this randomization process. It's not someone sitting behind a computer saying – And flipping a this. coin or yeah, anything like exactly. that, yes. Right. And that uh, isn't to say that the other 50% aren't getting treated. In cancer trials, it would be unethical to withhold standard treatment from a patient. So we never do that. It may just be that 50% of the patients get the standard therapy and – Fifty percent of the patients get a new therapy, and sometimes it's actually the standard therapy plus a new therapy. Okay, and we're going to talk about uh, blunt, or uh, we're going to talk about placebo in just a minute. But but what is a placebo? What is what does that mean? Yeah. So when you think about a placebo, a placebo, some people call it a sugar pill. Essentially, it is a pill or an infusion that looks identical to the active drug, but actually isn't uh, isn't the active drug. And so we might use that in a case um, of a study, for example, where we are studying the standard care uh, versus the standard care plus a new drug. So, for example, 50 percent of the people will get the standard active drug plus a placebo and the other 50 percent will get the standard active drug plus the the study drug on top of that. The only time we would use a placebo alone is if the standard of care was to not treat the disease. Okay, well explained. And 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 then I'm going to go one point further, and that is the idea of blinding. Some people ask, you know, what does it mean it's blinded? So um, how do you define that for a patient? Yeah, so, so blinding really means uh, that uh, at least some of the people involved in the study don't know uh, if the patient is receiving a placebo or an active study drug. And uh, you can have a double-blind study, which means that the treating team doesn't know, nor the, the folks on the on the study team, the sponsor team doesn't know either. Um, but, but that really boils down to uh, blinding. And the reason for blinding is that we don't want our own biases influencing the outcome of the study. If we knew which patients were receiving the placebo and which weren't, we might unconsciously treat them differently and then influence the outcome of the study. I think that's a good point to bring up, John, because of the fact that a lot of patients are saying, you know what I'm getting. Like, you know exactly what's on that trial. And you're actually saying, no, I don't. Like, I would love to be able to tell you. And there's sometimes where we have to unblind people. We did that today. We Dr. Matrena, you know, did because it's important to know what were they getting. So sometimes that is the process is we have to go in and, and talk with the sponsors and unblind them. Great. Well, that was our dose of statistics for the day. Um, Aaron, let me get back to asking you a question here. So I'm a patient. I want to learn more about clinical trials. How, how do I find out what clinical trials are available, what might be applicable to me? So there are so many resources that are available. The number one thing that I will tell people to talk about anyone is talk with their oncologist. Talk with your medical team. They are going to know what's available. You know, some places have more clinical trials than others. Some people may have a program. Some people may need to refer out. So it's really about talking to your team and saying, hey, I'm interested in clinical trials. I think this may be beneficial. I think I may be a good candidate. Let me see how it, how I can get involved in this. A lot of people go online. You can go to clinical 
clinicaltrials.gov, and that is where you can look at all the current active clinical trials that are undergoing in the United States right now, and it'll tell you where they're located. And some of the smartest and brightest patients I I have um, are currently searching for those trials, and they will go out to different cancer centers looking for that trial that they may match to. Additionally, besides that, um, I have a ton of patients who look online and just look at social media and Facebook groups and belonging to their societies of their cancer. You know, PanCan is one of them for pancreatic cancer. All of these places are a wealth of information. But I think it's important for talking with your provider and with your team because instead of just going Google and finding God only knows what on the Internet, you're going to get reliable sources. So speaking of potentially traveling to other sites, you know, Mark, let me ask you, when your patients might bring this up to you, especially patients who are quite active in doing their own research about potential clinical trials, how do you advise those patients if they're interested in, you know, going to another state, going to another city, uh, traveling for a clinical trial? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And so this does come up. It's always interesting to me that, you know, those patients who have a medical background, who are in the know, who are, you know, very sophisticated in this area, they often will travel the world to get on a clinical trial because they know that they have the best chance <clears throat> on a clinical trial. If if patients want to travel for a clinical trial, we never discourage it. In fact, you know, I always tell patients, if you want to get an, a second opinion, if, you, if that will settle your mind, if that will give you peace of mind, by all means, I completely encourage it. Um, but we also want to give patients the option of receiving therapy locally, and that's really important to us. So I think it's important to understand that if you do travel to um, another state for a clinical trial, you often have to be there at the clinical trial site frequently. Some clinical trials require you to be there more than once a week. And so for a patient, that might mean literally moving to another state so they can do a clinical trial, or at least traveling very, very frequently. Uh, this is why we built the Precision Cancer Therapies Program at Auctioner because we wanted to provide these early phase clinical trials right here in Louisiana. Nobody else was doing it. Uh, nobody else was doing it really uh, between Houston and Birmingham. And we wanted our patients to have the same level of care, the same options without having to leave the state. I'm going to chime in and also say that you have to remember that every single site that runs clinical trials may have different trial options. So, for instance, something that we are able to offer here in New Orleans may be completely different what they have in Houston. So it's very hard in, uh, t- to tell you what clinical trial you may qualify for and what options are, are open. So it's really about a lot of contacts and knowing people and just reaching out and to see. I know a lot of times people, like Dr. Matrena were saying, don't have the luxury of being able to go across state lines mm-hmm. and, you know, struggle and they can't afford that. So that is some a lot of things that, you know, um, we have these great societies that are that are helping here in New Orleans. We have Hope Lodge, who offers free housing um, for our cancer patients while they're undergoing therapy. I mean, that is a fantastic resource. If you're not already battling cancer, then you have to worry about paying for your hotel room on top of that. Some people don't have that luxury. They're still trying to figure out how to get gas in their cars. So, you know, some of these trials will give stipends and allow for gas reimbursement and different options like that. So it's always important to ask for help if you need it. For our next segment, I want to talk about common misconceptions about clinical trials. So I'm going to share a statement, and I want you to kind of comment on that and clear that up for us. So, so Mark, I'll start with you. Um, I'm a patient, and what if I say to you, 
I should only try a clinical trial if or when I run out of all other options. That is an area where we, we do have clinical trials if you run out of all options, but we actually have clinical trials at pretty much every stage in the cancer journey. For patients who are curable, uh, we have trials to actually test drugs uh, prior to surgery, for example, after surgery, for example, to try and prevent the cancer from coming back. We have trials for uh, patients with very early stages of cancer and uh, and late stages of cancer and uh, and everything in the middle. So, uh, you, you know, uh, the trials aren't just for patients who um, don't have any other standard of care options. Often, uh, as you mentioned before, we're combining standard of care options in these um, in these trials for earlier stage disease. We're trying new drugs, and so clinical trials are, really should be considered for all cancer patients at every stage of the game. All right, this one's for you, Aaron. If I'm on any clinical trial, there's a 50% chance that I'm going to receive a placebo or a sugar pill. So that is false. As we were talking about earlier in randomization, it all depends on what the study design is ultimately telling you. That study, that that protocol is what we call, defines everything about that study and will ultimately decide what proportion of the people are going to be getting which standard of care versus um, the active treatment versus whatever that arm may be. And just to clarify, an arm is what we consider the different types of therapy that that trial is offering. So, you know, you may have arm A, which is the study drug. Arm B may be the standard of care. And so that'll dictate kind of what you go through. Yeah. And I would just say to follow up on that is that if I may say a minority of our studies that we offer at Oshner involve any placebo. I mean, they they exist. And for the reasons you mentioned earlier, um, but, you know, particularly these early phase studies, these are not uh, involving placebo. So, you know, I think that's a a common misconception is that patients come in thinking they're going to get um, a 50% chance of not getting any therapy. And uh, I, I think that by and large is not the case. Yes. And, and not all studies are randomized, meaning that uh, some studies, everybody gets the uh, treatment. Not all studies are blinded. Uh, so you would know what you get up front and we would know too. So each, each trial is different. And again, it's unethical. We couldn't do that in just by giving people if there was something else better. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we're holding back that, that luxury. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, Aaron, let me, let me ask you another one. All right, I'm a patient, and I'm, I'm saying that clinical trials are going to increase my out-of-pocket expenses. That is something we actually hear a lot of, which is not necessarily true. So most of the time, the protocol will state what they will and will not cover as far as um, clinical trial, trial goes and um, expenses. For instance, you still have to pay your co-pays. You may still have to pay for your imaging if, if that is what it's deemed. But for instance, if the trial wants you to get scans every three weeks, but you know our guidelines say every 12 weeks, they would then cover for those costs. Um, we are in a very unique situation being in Louisiana, which I, uh, I hate to say that we're behind on a lot of things, but this is something we're actually really good with, is that in Louisiana, people that are on clinical trials are, are mandated by their insurance company that they have to cover those costs. So that is something that I'm really proud to say of Louisiana that we're doing and that the insurance company can't dictate and say, no, we refuse to pay for this clinical trial when once you sign consent, that goes away. Mark, this last one's for you. If I'm a patient on a clinical trial, I'm just a guinea pig. Yeah, that is something we occasionally hear. And what I can tell you is that when you talk to patients who are on clinical trials, they don't feel that way at all. In fact, the great majority of them feel that they're getting excellent care. And in our minds, 
they're getting not only the standard of care, they're getting care that even exceeds the standard. They really are VIPs. We're monitoring these patients at a much higher level. These patients get assigned a clinical trials research nurse who really is following them very, very closely. And, uh, you know, I think a guinea pig is the very farthest thing that um, that we would compare these patients to. In fact, we would compare them to, again, our, our VIPs who are, who are just uh, getting uh, terrific care plus. Yeah, absolutely. And I always tell that to my patients who come in and I'm like, oh, you're going to be on a, on a clinical trial line. You're going to love the extra resources you're getting just in terms of TLC, you know, attention, that kind of thing. Um, and, and furthermore, you know, going back to the idea of safety is so important and, and these drugs, you know, would not have made it to the point they're at unless the the overwhelming data was supporting how safe these medications are. Mm-hmm. These really are the best of the best of the best. Okay. For the next segment, I want to focus specifically at Oshner. Um So, Mark, I'll start with you. At Oshner, what types of trials uh, do we offer, do we participate in? We participate in a large number of cancer trials. At any one time, we probably have somewhere between 160 and 180 uh, clinical trials in cancer actively enrolling patients. These include cooperative group studies. Uh, Cooperative groups are uh, large groups of hospitals around the country who are doing research together. Uh, They're often funded by federal grants. Uh, We also do a lot of sponsored clinical trials. Uh, These are trials that pharmaceutical companies fund. They're developing new drugs, and they want to test those new drugs. Uh, That's probably the bulk of our our clinical trials. And those run the gamut from the very early phase ones to uh, phase three and and even later, believe it or not, trials. And um, we also do a handful of what's called investigator-initiated trials when one of our doctors wants to test a theory or a, a clinical research question and de- designs a trial themselves, uh, uh, investigates funding and, and gets funding uh, and, and runs the trial uh, locally outside of the hospital or through the hospital, I should say. Okay. And Aaron, what patients are we routinely offering trials to? When you're, you know, you see patients with many different cancer types, I mean, who are you offering these trials to? Honestly, we try to evaluate every single patient for a clinical trial. I think Dr. Matrina said it uh, perfectly earlier in that at every stage, at every diagnosis, at every um, cancer possibility, clinical trials should be forefront in what we're trying to do with people. Um, it may be difficult for people that have a rarer type of cancer. And, you know, these are when you may need to go to a bigger academic center that has something um a more robust program, um, for example. But I think, you know, here at Oshner, we really try to incorporate that. We always want to make sure that we have trial options for um, the different things. We look um, every other week talking about what our pipeline looks like and what trials we're having coming open, um, what is closing so that we can fill that gap to make sure that we're providing the very best that we can for our patients. To that end, we actually uh, are, are piloting a artificial intelligence program um, that is uh, it's called Deep Six. And what it actually does is uh, extracts data uh, from our electronic medical record. And it also understands what clinical trials we have and what the inclusion exclusion criteria for those trials are. And it tries to pair patients with those clinical trials. And then actually, we can download a list of potential patients for those trials. It saves a lot of manual uh, work and labor that uh, research nurses and other staff uh, have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. I think that's um, the future of a lot of things. Um, yeah. 
and hopefully they won't be taking all of our jobs, but <laughs> that's best for the patients. Then maybe it's okay. They can, they can <laughs> do they can do more of the work they really love to do, which is with the patients. Well, that's right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. So you know, let's close out this segment on our clinical trials at Oshner, focusing on what you know the three of us, particularly you, Mark, and you, Aaron, are, are really passionate about, and you've built here, and that's our uh, precision cancer therapies program. So. Talk with me, both of you, about what is that, why is it unique, and what are we offering to patients? Approximately five years ago, uh, we had the idea to start a phase one clinical trials program. We were already doing phase three trials, some phase two trials, but no one in the state in a, in a concerted way was doing phase one research studies, the very newest, uh, most innovative uh, trials. If patients wanted access to these trials and these drugs, they really had to go outside uh, of Louisiana. So we paired uh, up with a group called TGen out of Phoenix, Arizona, the Translational Genomics Research Institute, uh, a big outfit out there uh, led by a, a gentleman, uh, Dr. Dan Von Hoff, who is actually the world's most experienced phase one clinical trialist. And we paired up with them and started this program. Uh, we started small, of course, but we grew rapidly because there was a big need. And the Precision Cancer Therapies Program, really, I like to think of it as a double-sided coin. So one side of the coin is running these clinical trials so that we can give local patients and patients in our region access to these most innovative drugs. The other side of the coin is using genomics and precision medicine to pair patients with the very best therapies, taking a sample of the patient's tumor via biopsy, even archived tissue from an old biopsy or blood, extracting DNA, sequencing in these patients hundreds of genes that can therefore guide us to which therapy is going to work the best, sometimes the therapy we would have never dreamed of. This also allows us to get match patients to clinical trials that we know have a very high chance of benefiting the patient. And so on one side of the coin, we're doing clinical trials and drug development. On the other side of the clinical of, of, of the coin, we're doing genomic testing on, on these patients. And uh, you know, I'm very proud to say that we have opened hundreds of clinical trials now. We've enrolled many hundreds of patients on these clinical trials with great benefit in, in some cases. And uh, we have tested thousands, many thousands of patients uh, with uh, the genomic uh, sequencing at uh, for the great majority of the patients. In fact, probably over 99% of them at no cost to the patient, which is uh, which is absolutely terrific. That is it, that we've done some great things. Me and Dr. Matrena have been with the program, like he said, since the very beginning. And to say that we are passionate about this is an understatement. We love this program. Um, we see the benefits directly with with our patients. And overall, I would say our patients are so thankful to be able to have access to this and be able to spend more time with their families close to home instead of traveling and being on the road. So to be able to offer them that, especially, you know, with some people who do may only be here for a couple more years. I mean, that's everything. Yeah. And I think um, I've been impressed, certainly, since I've come here and seen uh, the outfit that has been set up by you guys and, and the passion that you bring to it, but really the team, right? So we have a team of research nurses, of data coordinators, of um, regulatory staff, regulatory staff, and um, really, I mean, it takes a uh, quite the village. It does. Uh, it, it's not, you know, setting up a phase one program is not as easy as oh yeah, recruiting a couple drug companies to set up a shop right. uh, at, at your hospital. Um, you need the infrastructure. The reason uh, that there are so few of these in the country is because it's really hard to do, and it takes, like you said, a big team, a lot of infrastructure, 
it's a very costly undertaking. And it's not something that we make a lot of money from necessarily. In fact, uh, it's often a money loser. Uh, but we do it because it's the right thing to do for patients. And I will have to say, like Dr. Matrena mentioned, Ashner has been very very giving with this program. I mean, I think they are committed to this. They're committed to to cancer care in, in New Orleans and in, in our region and really support us as well from an administrative level. Absolutely. And our patients. We have had, uh, you know, many, many patients who have made donations in the program. In fact, we've had two that have given more than a million dollars uh, to help wow. uh, fund the uh, program. And, uh, and, and that has lasting impact, uh, really, for, for years and maybe even generations to come. It's certainly exciting, and as the number of patients that we accrue continue to grow, the number of trials we can offer grow, uh, it, it's just going to continue to blossom, and um, uh, we appreciate you know you guys for being at the forefront of that. For our last segment of our conversation, I want to talk about the, the future of clinical trials. And, and you know if you look back 30 years, the trials that were done, they're quite different in, in scope and uh, in terms of what questions are being asked, what patients are eligible potentially. Uh, so, you know, let me let me start with you, Mark. Um, are there certain changes that you've seen recently in clinical trials and you think are going to continue uh, over the course of your career and moving forward that you're kind of most excited about? Absolutely, especially when we think about those early phase one trials. Uh, not that many years ago, these trials really were trials in which, you know, drugs we didn't understand very well were being tested and uh, many of them didn't have a very high rate of benefit to the patients. Um, today, by pairing these trials with precision medicine techniques, using designer drugs that we know are going to work against specific genetic mutations and pairing patients with those mutations to those drugs, we uh, are often seeing response rates in our patients uh, that are, are just uh, phenomenally better than they were years ago. In fact, there are some trials now that have you know, greater than 90% response rates. And these are in patients who have failed all standard of care options. So certainly I think precision medicine is a, a big, big key in this. I think digitizing trials, um, uh, using more of the technologies, the AIs, uh, uh, digital medicine, telehealth, um, all of those are going to make trials more efficient and effective for patients. And then and finally, I would say that we are um, in an era in which data is coming out so fast, uh, knowledge is coming out so fast that often a trial is obsolete before it even gets off the ground. And we are combating that particular problem with what we call adaptive trial designs, trials that have um, certain statistical considerations up front so that the trial can actually evolve as um, the medicine evolves. Yeah, and we're actually changing even some of our statistical planning uh, that ways that I don't really understand into, you know, I, we hear the word Bayesian, Bayesian statistics yeah. coming out a lot. And, and just that has, has really changed how we're designing clinical trials as well. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, I'll kind of add in a little bit of what I think are areas in which change is needed and, and I'm looking forward to change. One of those is that, you know, we know it, it's no secret that diversity in clinical trials can be a problem. Yes. Uh, we, we know that uh, representation of minorities in particular, um, sometimes um, in gender, uh, are not equal. It is crucial not only for the patient's benefit of being offered the clinical trial, but also when we extrapolate this data, when we take the data that comes from a clinical trial and say, hey, now I have this information, can I apply that to my patient sitting in the clinic? Well, that patient wasn't represented well in the trial, so I don't know. So it's so important to have accurate 
representation of the actual population we're seeing. And I think increasing diversity in clinical trials is one of the ways we can do that. Uh, you mentioned doing more digitized uh, uh, monitoring and stuff like that in clinical trials, and I think that's really important. I mean, we talk about traveling to other sites for clinical trials, and you know, maybe in the future not all that travel is really necessary. If you mm-hmm. could do a virtual visit, if you could uh, get labs locally that aren't necessarily uh, ones that you have to do in at the site, um, if you can uh, report your uh, blood pressure and temperature and pulse on a digital monitor that links with your phone that sends it across to the uh, investigator. I mean, things like that are going to be crucial for patients. These are things we're doing today. Exactly. Um, One of the things that we're working on right now is something called Chemotherapy Care Companion. And this is a program with exactly doing what you just mentioned. Patients provide it with a scale and with a thermometer and a blood pressure cuff, and it connects wirelessly and then integrates into our computer system at Oshner. So the patient may be sitting at home, but I can look at their vital signs and making sure that we're being proactive on monitoring them. That's pretty amazing. You've gotten a grant to support that, haven't you? I did. I got I got a $25,000 grant so that way we were able to continue offering this to patients free of charge. And our hope is that we'll be able to increase patient satisfaction, um, prevent complications from arising, and be really proactive with monitoring on these, on these drugs. Great. And, and, you know, we talked earlier about having patient representation on these institutional review boards. But I think when designing clinical trials, having patient representatives who have been there, who are in the field, in the trenches, going through these uh, experiences, being involved in the clinical trial design is also crucial and something we're seeing more and more, particularly in these cooperative group studies. Yes. Yes. Actually, Oxner has a uh, patient advisory council that does just this. Any uh, researcher can actually uh, schedule a session. I did one uh, just last week, and uh, you can meet with them and discuss your ideas and get feedback. And I was I was really surprised to tell you the truth at how sophisticated and knowledgeable um, these patients were, and they really ask uh, tough questions. and uh, And it was really really helpful to uh, to meet with them. Yes, we lose nothing and gain so much by involving our patients in these processes. Absolutely, absolutely. So let me kind of close with this, and I want to give each of you the opportunity to um, share some thoughts here. While being HIPAA-friendly, any just quick stories or anecdotes you'd like to share about um, a a patient who benefited from being on a clinical trial uh, here at Oshner? Uh, Aaron, do you have one? I'm going to let Dr. Montreux go first because I want to know who he's going to say because I'm thinking (laughs) about somebody too. Okay. You know, we've we've had several patients who have had, you know, what we consider true miracles. Uh, To be honest with you, I often joke with them and I say, you know, you should probably be calling the Vatican right now <laughs> you know, to report your report your miracle. But you know, one that comes to mind is we had a lady who um, was diagnosed with very advanced kidney cancer, stage four terminal uh, kidney cancer, and she started with us on a clinical trial. And not only uh, did her cancer uh, fully respond to the therapy, mean completely go away. She was able to get off of, uh, of treatment and has been off of treatment completely now for a couple of years. Wow. Uh, and there's no sign of cancer whatsoever in this, in this lady. And we have, we have a handful of stories like this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable. And every time I see her, you know, I, I tell her, I said, I've never met another kidney cancer patient or even heard of one with stage four terminal disease who is completely off of therapy with no evidence of cancer. We cannot find it. And years later. Years later. 
years later. And so, uh, you know, those type of stories uh, uh, make us just want to, you know, dive deeper and yeah. and uh, and do and 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 do this work more. And uh, because uh, that's what it's all about. There's something there. There's Beat that, Aaron. <laughs> that one's really hard to beat. I don't know if mine's so much a miracle, but as somebody that I, I'm thinking about this week that we saw, um, me and Dr. Matrena were walking through the lobby, and I, I almost didn't even recognize her, and it was a, a patient, and, and she looked fantastic. And this is a lady with metastatic colon cancer. Um, she had been treated for colon cancer and stage three, so hopefully curative, and she had done everything correct. She did surgery and did she did chemo afterwards. Unfortunately, her cancer came back. And she progressed pretty quickly through two of the major standard of care. We then got her on this clinical trial, this early phase trial with us. She has been on it now for over six months. Her scans are looking fantastic. More importantly, the patient looks fantastic. She says, Aaron, I have curls in my hair again. <laughs> she was just so vibrant. And it, I just kept looking at her. And even Dr. Matrina looked when we walked away after, he goes, Oh my God, she looks great. <laughs> she feels wonderful. <laughs> exactly. Like so, people think that these clinical trials are going to make you, you know, sick, and, and it's going to be worse than chemo. And you know, this is prime example that this woman is thriving. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing both those stories, and just you know, obviously every patient experience is different. And, yeah. um, but but there are these um, patients who get opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't uh, by participating in clinical trial. Um, so I think you both agree that uh, early and often uh, we should be offering clinical trials. Yes. Um, here at Oshner, we have them uh, really for across the board in our cancers. Uh, uh, we try to have them in every stage so we can fit every blank spot where we know there's a standard of care. We're trying to do better. Um, and um, I appreciate you guys coming and uh, having these conversations with me and everything you've done to to really push and uh, promote the clinical trials program at Oshner. Thanks. I appreciate it that you were invited us to come and talk. Yeah, thank you for having us. So if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with cancer and is considering enrolling in the clinical trial, I hope this episode can give you some guidance on how to make an informed decision. The research team at the Oshner Cancer Institute is comprehensive and committed to matching the best trial opportunities to each individual patient. Our unique Precision Cancer Therapies program is the largest early phase clinical trials program in the region, offering unparalleled access to novel cancer treatments for our patients. To learn more or to schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Oshner, go to my.oshner.org. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast. 